Climate change is a global phenomenon. But we experience it where we live, in our homes and workplaces, streets and parks, and in our bodies, wherever they're found. For 4.2 million people, that's in Montreal. Welcome to Zone Rouge, CJLO's series about the impact of the climate crisis on Montreal. Montreal has made ambitious targets on climate change. And people in Montreal have made headlines around the world by gathering in the hundreds of thousands to demand action on climate change. But the city is going to be changed by the climate, too. This week on the series, Food. Climate change and the threat it poses to the global food supply. It's a special report two years in the making. When we win words this number about how many years are left on Earth in terms of, or how many harvested, that was actually calculated on how much are we losing soil and, and topsoil um, every year. And yes, if we continue doing what we're doing, we don't, we might not have more than 60 harvests. Take it for granted, we live off the land, but we're not managing it properly. So that includes... The United Nations has warned the world that through soil loss, water depletion, and extreme weather, climate change is putting pressure on the planet's ability to feed people. But the effects of that will not be felt equally. And in Montreal, questions of food sovereignty, food insecurity, and food waste will determine who is most affected. Yet those challenges offer opportunities, too. We have a very stark choice. We either change our food system to manage all the coming challenges, or we suffer the consequences. We're talking about being a nation, Mohawk nation. One of the important things that we have to do as a nation is have the ability to feed ourselves. For us, we looked at it like uh, it was something that it's empowering. Et cet été, je faisais une distribution et uh, j'ai vu plus de détresse que d'habitude et j'ai vu plus de nourriture dans les poubelles encore. Et là, j'ai ressenti une colère et une grande amertume de ça. Donc j'ai dû inventer des solutions. This series was recorded on unceded indigenous land where the Ganyagahaga Nation is recognized as the custodians of the lands and waters, and in Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. I'm Maura Donovan. Let's get to it. When is food more than whatever you happen to find on your plate? You could argue that food is always more than that. It's culture and industry and artistry. It's tradition and innovation. And in a room filled to bursting with boxes of produce at the Maison de l'Amitié in the Plateau, 
Food is also waste, but not for long. Donc ici, c'est une distribution alimentaire qui euh, ne contient que des invendus. This is Atlantide Desrochers. For the past five years, she's been collecting food from local merchants, partnering with 25 businesses in the plateau and Myland to collect unsold items, which she then donates to people in these boroughs and others. Et cette nourriture non vendue donc permet aux gens euh, de, 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 de manger à leur faim tout simplement. Avant que je la récupère, elle était jetée. Through these donations, Desrochers organization Partage et Solidarité feeds about 5,000 people. But what might be most striking about this isn't how many people she's helping, but how much food is thrown away. J'offre des sushis, j'offre du poisson, j'offre de la nourriture très, très bonne, des produits bio, des produits végés, des produits véganes. Le pain, c'est atroce. Les boulangeries font plein de pain pour ne pas manquer de la spécificité qu'il faudra au client qui va venir. Qui fait, oh, ben, il n'y a pas mon super pain spécial, je ne viens plus là. Donc le pain, là, c'est atroce, atroce. Puis en fait, c'est toute la bouffe qui est gaspillée. J'offre beaucoup de fruits et légumes. On avait des fraises la semaine dernière. On a aujourd'hui des pommes, des poires, des kiwis, des mandarines, des clémentines, des bananes, des bleus des framboises. Donc pendant ce temps-là, il y a des gens qui crèvent de faim, qui n'ont absolument rien pour manger, et on a une planète qui se désintègre complètement, et nous, on s'en va enfouir ça, enfouir ça. C'est complètement fou, là. On ne peut plus jeter. C'est plus possible. Canadians have the undesirable distinction of being among the most profligate nationalities in the world when it comes to food waste. 11 billion tons of edible food produced in Canada is thrown away every year, 20% of the total. And in Montreal, Desrochers is trying to change that, not just with their food bank, but with petitions, including one to the city of Montreal. J'ai retroussé mes manches, j'ai travaillé 8 heures par jour, j'ai travaillé jour et nuit là-dessus, puis on a dépassé le 15 000. Having passed the 15,000 signature mark, that petition triggered a public consultation on reducing food waste, which started in December. Not one to rest on her laurels, Desrochers has started another petition this past summer to Quebec's Assemblée Nationale, calling on the province to ban the throwing away of food. Tu sais qu'au mois d'août, c'était pas prévu, hein? Je l'ai décidé vraiment comme ça. Et cet été, je faisais une distribution et euh, j'ai vu plus de détresse que d'habitude et j'ai vu plus de nourriture dans les poubelles encore. Et là, j'ai ressenti une colère et une grande amertume de ça. Et deux semaines plus tard, j'avais créé le texte et j'avais... On avait tout euh, corrigé, puis c'était déposé. J'avais pas de plan, là, tu sais, je l'ai déposé. Et la journée même, j'ai dit, quand ça a été déposé, j'ai dit, bah, qui je préviens, du coup, qu'est-ce que je fais <rire> Donc j'ai dû inventer des solutions. Je suis allée chercher des gens, euh, virtuellement, puis je leur disais, bon, bah, j'ai un groupe, je donne de la nourriture, mais j'ai besoin d'aide, signez ma pétition. The woman is an absolute machine. But it'll take more than one person, no matter how determined, to turn the tide on our unsustainable food practices. And to see why, let's return to that plate of food we started with. Everything food is and isn't. Imagine on this plate, there's asparagus grown on an industrial farm. Increasing CO2 levels in the atmosphere could affect the metabolism of this asparagus and therefore its nutritional content, among other impacts of climate change on food production, too numerous to mention. 
But the way this asparagus is produced is also a cause of climate change. Everybody knows the problem with fossil fuel, but there's another problem, uh, which is the carbon stored in agriculture land, which is also uh, we've been losing uh, every year. This is Antonius Petro. I'm a scientific director at Regeneration Canada. So Regeneration Canada is a non-for-profit that aims to promote soil health and regenerative agriculture as a way I mean, as a solution to the, crisis, the, the climate crisis that uh, we're having. Regeneration Canada got its start in 2017 with a Living Soil Symposium at Concordia. For Petro, the passion goes back even further. I was born in a farm where we were um, growing cotton. Maybe in the year 2000, we couldn't grow cotton anymore. And I realized that there is a problem. And... I thought the problem was just the whole agriculture uh, word. So I, I quit agriculture and I did pharmacy and policy and all of that. And then seven years ago, uh, um, I did a permaculture certificate um, in, in Mexico. And uh, I was introduced to soil microbiology. And then I spent two years after just uh, looking at what are those small organisms doing and how they're crucial to our living. And from that point, I realized that this is the only thing that everybody should work on in you know, full time, partial time, or just a couple of minutes per day because we all depend on the soil. Over the last couple centuries though, that relationship has become toxic. And we've been doing this by tilling the soil, by intensifying our practices uh, uh, on soil. And there is like, you know, every year we lose about 12 million hectares of, of, of agricultural land that goes to sometimes irreversible desertification or salination uh, or contamination so it's it's a it's a pretty bad um when we when were this number about um how many years are left on earth in terms of or how many harvested that was actually calculated on how much are we losing soil and, and topsoil um every year and yes if we continue doing what we're doing we don't we might not have more than 60 harvests Industrial agricultural practices like tilling have released carbon that was stored in the soil for millions of years into the atmosphere. And pesticides and synthetic fertilizers have wiped out the billions and billions of tiny microorganisms that live in the soil and convert not just carbon, but also elements like nitrogen and potassium into a form that plants, and therefore people, can absorb. So um, a, a rich soil that has made maybe 5% of organic matter is a very dark chocolate-colored soil that's always um, moist, like humid. There is humidity even though, even even during the last, the most severe um, heat waves, because by this five percent organic matter, it, it's a habitat for billions and billions of soil microorganisms that work that 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 digest this organic matter and convert it to a very um, digestible and available form for the plants. So there's a community 
of that works in, in, in the soil that keep the soil alive. And I would say the whole humanity depends on this 5% of organic matter uh, because this is how plants are, are being grown and then this is how animals are being fed and this uh, and thus us as, uh, as human. We can even go further. Um, soil microorganisms, not only they are responsible of the life in terms of uh, providing element and nutrition nutritious elements to the to, to the plant and thus for animals and humans the the soil microorganism actually sometimes they are the responsible of like rain provoking the rain because uh, we found that some of these bacteria that live on on the trees uh, leaves actually go uh, up with the with the wind and they responsible of you know the tipping point uh, from the clouds to become to become rain. There's no avoiding the fact that, given the centrality of soil, its degradation on a planetary scale paints a bleak picture. I mean, at some point, it's gonna go to the tipping point that if if only the minority uh, of of farms and farmers and, and citizens are applying those practices, the the impact will be too great on them to reverse the the equation. So I wouldn't say it's too late, but it's actually very, very, very late. Nonetheless, Petro says there is still time to make changes that would not only sequester carbon, but also improve food security. And those practices could have benefits even in projects where soil revitalization is not the first goal. Our best crop so far was the first year that we had planted. And since then, it might have been because of, uh, uh, I guess, using the nutrients in the soil or whatever, but uh, the crops, our yield hasn't been as successful as that first year. So what we start, what we try to do this year was uh, we're looking at a soil revitalization, planting cover crops and uh, trying to rotate. We're going to see if that has any effect for uh, next year's growing season. My name is Gunnar Dio Hemlock. I'm Ganyagehaga uh, from Ganawaga. I teach social studies at the First Nations International Education Center, as well as the work that we do with the food sovereignty. Several years ago, as people in Ganawage were trying to decide what to do with a parcel of land along Highway 30 that the community had successfully fought for the return of after it had been expropriated by the provincial government, some people's thoughts turned to food. So we start passing ideas around. And somebody said, well, what about a community garden? All that land used to be garden before. I said, oh yeah, so what would we plant in this community garden? I said, all traditional foods, corn, beans, squash. I said, everybody would have a, uh, uh, everybody in the community would have, I guess, be uh, entitled to work it and take take from there what they need. And then we looked, they said, well, we don't have any seeds for a big giant garden, this big so we put a call out to the community and our sister communities. And then at one point we didn't have any seeds. And then over the course of a weekend, we had more seeds than we knew what to do with. So we ended up 
planting uh, white corn, corn uh, beans, squash, different vegetables. And it was all volunteer, people in the community, people coming out. Soil regeneration practices like rotating crops and planting crops that cover the soil over the winter, providing nutrients and preventing erosion, aren't the point of this project. But they could form an important part of helping the garden continue to fulfill its goal of providing food sovereignty. One of the things that we talked about was that uh, using that land for this purpose, we're talking about being a nation, Mohawk nation, one of the important things that we have to do as a nation is have the ability to feed ourselves. For us, we looked at it like uh, it was something that, that's empowering for us to do that, to go there to plant our uh, traditional foods for the community. Uh, another thing we're looking at was uh, we have a high rate of uh, like cancers and sicknesses, diabetes. One thing that can help that is eating... Uh, eating our traditional foods, eating a nutritious diet. So that's another thing that we had in mind as we were doing it. A lot of food that we're getting is, uh, we're giving it back to like the elders lodge, the hospital. I guess people that need it. The garden has also brought the idea of food sovereignty, which is particularly important in indigenous communities, as a way of rewriting colonial systems that have led to higher levels of food insecurity to the forefront. Before we started the garden, before we approached the community about what we wanted to do, before we brought up this uh, idea of uh, food sovereignty and this empowerment of uh, growing your own food and everything, the talk was out there, but it wasn't really, it wasn't in the forefront. Just this summer, we were able to secure funding to work in the garden. Uh, we had... 13 workers come out to work over there. But I think more importantly, we start noticing in the community, uh, individuals, families, they all start planting their own gardens. Uh, You're looking on social media, uh, people are talking about food sovereignty, uh, getting their kids involved in planting their own gardens, uh, tying it with uh, traditional values. People are uh, exchanging seeds. They're asking questions, gardening questions. I don't want to say that uh, we were responsible for this movement in this direction, but I think that we had a hand in bringing this to, I guess, people's consciousness in the community. So some ways of increasing the resiliency of food systems involve a return to tradition. Others look to a hypothetical future. Let's catapult ourselves forward in time, but potentially not that far, and pretend the meat on this plate was produced in a lab. So you might have heard to it referred to by names like clean meat, cellular meat, lab-grown meat, and so on. Angela Lee is an assistant professor at Ryerson University's Faculty of Law, and the food innovation she's talking about there could figure on the dinner plates of the future. And essentially, it's a product of cellular agriculture, but it starts with taking starter stem cells from a live animal 
And then these stem cells are combined with a growth serum or a growth medium. And then there are several different ways in which the process can work. But one of the conventional ways to do this is to put that sludge essentially of cells and the culture medium in a bioreactor. And then the mixture is then stimulated with some kind of mechanical current in order to encourage it to proliferate and grow the same way that human muscles will grow when they're exercised, for example. You're left with a product that at the cellular level is functionally equivalent to meat that is conventionally produced via other methods. Lab-grown meat has been pitched as a solution for everything from the carbon footprint of meat to the animal suffering caused by industrial agriculture. And there's no denying that human consumption of meat needs to change. 70% of agricultural land is devoted to producing livestock, which in turn produces almost 20% of all greenhouse gas emissions. But Lee says lab-grown meat isn't as neat of a solution as some people make it out to be. So right now, one of the most commonly available and cheap culture mediums is fetal bovine serum, which is derived from the blood of baby calves. And so the status of this product as something that is truly animal suffering free or animal product free is in contention. And there's actually a company based in Canada that's working on developing a culture medium that's plant-based to ameliorate some of these concerns, but it's certainly not a straightforward process. And there are, there are myriad challenges that will have to be resolved. So all of this is to say that I don't think that it's necessarily a panacea to point to these kinds of technologies and say that it can get us out of these other kinds of problems because we're not necessarily looking at the full picture. But this brings me back to another point that I want to make, which is that when it comes to these technological innovations, it's important to consider not only what the technologies and the ways in which they're regulated promise or what they claim to do, but also the alternatives that they might foreclose or stymie. And the risk here is that by focusing too narrowly on these technologies, there's a risk of diverting time attention and resources from simpler solutions to these very vexing problems with potentially fewer systemic implications. Some of those solutions have to do with food waste, the kinds of solutions we heard Atlanti Desrochers proposing at the beginning of this episode. They could also involve more equitable ways of ensuring access to healthy food. Euh, n'importe qui qui habite dans mon quartier, je te dirais surtout la partie ouest, est concerné par les enjeux de sécurité alimentaire tout simplement parce que c'est quelque chose qu'on vit à chaque à chaque semaine, à chaque fois qu'on doit s'alimenter, en fait. This is Dimitri Esperance. He lives in St. Henry, and he's been aware of food security issues, especially in the western part of the borough, for a long time. But when the pandemic hit, and the only grocery store that delivered to the area became so busy it took a week to get food delivered, the lack of food options in the neighborhood was brought to the foreground. Comme beaucoup de gens l'ont dit à cette époque-là, le confinement a vraiment exacerbé les inégalités sociales qui étaient présentes dans le quartier. It's not that there are no places to get food in St. Henry. On the contrary, there are many restaurants and small grocers, like Le Pantry, which just opened in the place of a grocer and café by the same name. Just as it did before, the grocery still offers sandwiches. Sauf que là, maintenant, les sandwiches qui avant coûtaient, bon, maximum une dizaine de dollars, commencent à 15, 16, 17 dollars. Euh, la penterie de il y a cinq ans et la penterie de cette année, euh, la différence est très, très majeure et ça témoigne de la transformation que le quartier est en train de vivre de manière 
de manière très, très claire. This means, for many people, a rapidly gentrifying St. Henry is less a food desert, meaning a place where there are no food options, than a food mirage, where options seem to exist, but elude people's grasp. C'est-à-dire que c'est là, mais c'est pas vraiment là. C'est là, mais c'est pas accessible. To address this, Espérance and the Citizens Collective he founded, Collectif La Dalle, is in the process of starting a non-profit market in St. Henry, which they aim to have up and running as a pilot project by next summer. The market will follow the model of other non-profit grocers like Epicerie Le Détour in Pointe-Saint-Charles, with volunteers contributing a certain number of hours a week in return for access to healthy, affordable food. Euh, ce que nous, on veut essayer de mettre de l'avant, c'est vraiment des fermiers, des fermiers de proximité, donc des fermiers qui euh, sont dans la grande région montréalaise. On aimerait ça également mettre de l'avant des fermiers issus de la diversité, des fermiers racisés. Insofar as the market would prioritize locally grown organic food where possible, this is a climate measure, encouraging a diet that supports healthier soil and less dependence on animal products. But Espérance says they're not emphasizing that side of it because many people in the neighborhood who are already wary of gentrification are also wary of the food security and sustainability projects that often go hand in hand with that gentrification. By the same token, as a racialized person, Espérance has rarely seen himself reflected in those projects. T'as d'un côté les travailleurs, les gens qui donnent de la nourriture, souvent des personnes blanches, souvent des personnes aisées, euh, ben aisées, du moins privilégiées, je dirais, des personnes qui euh, ont été à l'université et tout. Et de l'autre côté, t'as les personnes qui reçoivent la nourriture, qui souvent sont des personnes racisées, des personnes plus démunies. On veut essayer de briser cette hiérarchie-là. Ce que je veux dire par là, euh, c'est d'une part d'être conscient, euh, d'être conscient des, euh, des différents euh, systèmes d'oppression qui, qui euh, ont œuvre dans notre société et qui font que, par exemple, les personnes racisées et euh, autochtones sont beaucoup plus de chances d'être euh, à risque et d'être en insécurité alimentaire et ont beaucoup plus de chances de vivre dans un quartier qui est un désert alimentaire, mais également de toute la hiérarchisation qui peut exister souvent dans les initiatives de sécurité alimentaire. But Espérance is hoping they can bring climate justice to food systems in St. Henry with a project that dismantles some of the hierarchies that often exist. L'idée, c'est de se poser la question, pas euh, comment est-ce que je peux donner le plus de nourriture possible aux gens qui n'en ont pas, mais de se poser la question euh, fichtrement plus radicale de pourquoi certaines personnes ont faim et pourquoi les personnes qui ont faim au Canada me ressemblent dans une perspective qui est disproportionnée. Et c'est un peu d'utiliser la nourriture comme étant un vecteur de changement social. Essayez, du moins. In other words, just as creating a climate-resilient food system means examining every part of the food process, from the tiniest microorganism in the soil to the test tubes in the lab, it also means examining how people can regain agency over their food systems and why some people go hungry when dumpsters are full. Access to healthy food is foundational to health, of people and of the planet. But that isn't the only aspect of the climate crisis that will impact health. 
you know, when we talk about health effects, I think that this is a question actually that, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, it was a question that we were interested in and, and attended to. But I, I just like to use a little analogy to say why I think it's really a wrong question in 2020 and not wrong from your part, but just in general. Um, so I think that if you think of our planet as being one of those little enclosed glass ball, like those little snowballs that they're snow globes that you may have seen. And you think, okay, you know, here we have rising temperatures. So within there, this extreme heat, which is a few degrees Celsius is extreme heat uh, on the planet. And so you have billions of forests burning. So all of Australia and California and BC and, and you have thick black smoke inside your little snow globe. So when we talk about a planet that's not surviving, it's pretty clear that our health is in danger at so many levels that we can hardly even discuss it anymore. And it's not just about us. And if it's always just about us, it's not going to improve. The climate crisis and health in our bodies, in our minds, and in our ecosystems. That's next time on Zone Rouge. This episode was produced by me, Moira Donovan, with production help from Zoe Bailey-Stetson. Until next time.